So this month we're going to be highlighting the core value of worship. Um, would you turn with me to Psalm 95? Psalm 95. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Ma- at Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is one of my favorite portions of scripture on worship because I feel like it answers three of the most important questions about worship. The three questions that we're going to answer today is what is worship, why should we worship God, and how do we worship? So if you're new around here at Family Life Church, you might, might have noticed that we like to worship here. And so being that that's one of our core values, we're going to talk about why that is and hopefully help you understand that. So what is worship? Worship is ascribing ultimate value to something. And according to this portion of scripture, it engages all of who you are. It engages your entire being. This scripture says that it engages our mind, our will, and our emotions. In verse 7, it talks about engaging our mind. It talks about reason and thinking. It says to hear his voice, listen to his voice, believe what he says. Verse 6 says to bow down, to come and to kneel before him. It refers to submission, our will. And then verse 1 refers to our emotions. It says to sing, to shout aloud, thanksgiving, extol, to make music. You cannot worship if it doesn't engage all of who you are, both your mind, your will, and your emotions. You can come to church. You can agree with our statement of faith. You can even sing the songs that we sing. But if you never experience God, if you never experience the joy, the splendor of who he is, the beauty of who he is, in your emotions, then it's not true worship. You have to experience them in your emotions. God made you an emotional person, even though some of you act like you're not. God still made you with emotions. Um, Even though you act stoic, he did make you with emotions. And he meant for you to experience him and express your emotions in worship to him. But it can't just stop there. It can't just be an emotional experience. You can come to church and you can worship and you could even cry. You could weep in the presence of the Lord. You could laugh out loud as you realize how amazing and good he is as a father, but it can't just end at emotional, an emotional experience. It has to affect your will. So if your worship never changes the rhythms and the patterns of your life, then it's not true worship. It has to affect who you are on every level. The best example I could think of to explain what worship is is a story that I heard about a woman. It was National Women's Day this week, so I figured I should tell you a story about a woman. So there's a story about this woman 
She received some jewelry from her mother just before her mother passed away. Her mother had received that same jewelry box with jewelry in it from her mother before she had passed away. So it had been passed down from generation to generation. And this woman raised her family. She'd been married for about 30 years. She raised her family and her youngest daughter was about to go off to college. So they got her all loaded up in the, in the van. They got all of her stuff and they took her to college. They got her all settled, settled, they got her dropped off, and then they headed home, the husband and the wife. They got home, they walked in the door, maybe some of you have had this experience, and they walked in the door and they looked around at this house that at one point was just filled with kids, filled with kids and kids stuff, filled with sports equipment, filled with homework, filled with clothes, filled with food for the kids. At one time, it felt like this house was like busting at the seams, but now the house feels very big and very empty. So the couple looks around and they say, you know what, it's time to downsize. We don't need this big house. The wife didn't want to have to clean this huge house. The husband didn't want to have to take care of the lawn and snow blow the long driveway. So they said, you know what, it's time to downsize. So they decide they're going to downsize and they're going to to go through all their stuff and they're going to decide what they want to keep and what they want to give away. They're going to make three piles. They're going to make a yard sale pile, a giveaway pile, and a throwaway pile, right? That's what you do. So as they have free time, they go through their stuff and they're organizing it in these piles to get rid of it. And then one weekend they decide it's time to tackle the attic. So they go up into the attic. The husband pulls the the latch down and lets the ladder down. And the wife goes up and she's getting these bins and tubs and boxes. And she's handing them down. And everyone she hands down, she tells the husband which pile to put it in. They worked for a long time going through all this stuff in the attic. Then eventually, just as they were about to finish up, the wife noticed a box, a cardboard box, in the back of the attic. So she went over to it. It was just covered in dust. There was like, must have been an inch of dust on the top of this thing. So she went to brush off the dust, and the cardboard was literally falling apart. So she took the lid off. She looked inside, and inside the box was a bunch of stuff from her grandmother that her grandmother had given to her mother and then had been passed down to her. There were some letters from the grandfather to the grandmother and some other family things, but this jewelry box was in the cardboard box. So she takes it and she hands the box down to the husband and he says, which pile does it go in? And she says, "Ah, I think I'm going to keep it. And he kind of rolls his eyes and thinks to himself, if it's been in the back of the attic for 30 years, we probably don't need it. But since it's National Women's Day, he decides he's not going to fight that battle today. So he sets it in the room. And then uh, later that evening, they go, and the woman is looking through the box. And she opens the jewelry box, and she's looking through it. And the husband asks what's in it. And so he says, well, it's mostly jewelry that came from my grandmother that was given to my mother, and then she gave it to me right before she passed away. And she said, none of it's real. It's not really worth anything. And it's all just, it's really only has sentimental value to us. So... He looks at it and he says, well, you might as well take it to a jeweler and have it appraised just to make sure none of it's worth anything before we throw it out. And she said, wait a second, I thought we weren't going to throw it out. He said, yeah, okay, we're not going to throw it out. So she sets up an appointment with the jeweler. She takes the jewelry box to the jeweler. He starts going through the items and he gets his little magnification device out and sticks it in his eye and he's looking at each individual thing. And he's very nice and he's very kind, but each item he hands back to her and he says, I'm sorry, it's not really worth anything. It's not real. And then they got to the engagement ring that the uh, grandfather had given to the grandmother. He looks at the engagement ring, and he looks at it for a while. It takes a little bit longer looking at the engagement ring. 
And then eventually he pulls out another magnification device to the woman. It looked like a microscope. So he takes this other um, magnification device and he sets the ring in that device. And he, he looks through it. And he's taking a long time looking at it. Then eventually he pulls out some special kind of light. And he shines the light on, the, on this ring to look at it under this device. And the woman, when he pulls out the light, the woman, woman notices that his hand is kind of shaking a little bit. And she thinks that's kind of weird. And then she kind of looks at him again, and she realizes his breathing has increased, and he's kind of breathing harder. And she says, sir, are, are you okay? And he says, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. And he keeps looking at it, and he's taking longer and longer. Finally, she can't take it anymore. And she's like, why are you taking so long looking at this fake engagement ring? And he stands up, and he says, ma'am, I, I don't even know how to say this to you, but it's real. She says, no, like, you don't understand. Like, my grandma, she said they didn't have two nickels to rub together when they, when they got engaged. They didn't have any money. There's no way that this ring is real. She says, my, uh, my grandfather, he found out on a Thursday that he was going to have to leave to go to war on a Monday. So on Friday, they got engaged. On Saturday, they got married. On Sunday, they had their honeymoon. And then on Monday, he left. He didn't have any money. There's no way that this ring is real. And he says, ma'am, I, I don't know how to tell this how to tell you this any differently. Not only is this thing real, but the gemologist who cut this ring, that type of cutting doesn't even exist anymore. All those gemologists are dead and gone. Not only is this real, it's incredibly valuable. She said, well, how valuable? And he said, it's more valuable than all the rest of the rings, all the rest of the diamonds, all the rest of the jewelry in my entire store. The woman feels like she's going to have a heart attack. She's hyperventilating. She feels like she's going to fall down. Her legs are shaking. The man kind of helps her sit down. And she says to him, she says, there's no way this is real. And then she begins to think back over her life. She's been married for about 30 years. Her and her husband have struggled a lot over those 30 years financially. There was lots of nights where the husband came and tucked the kids into bed, kissed them on the head, and then went out and left to work a second job that night. And she looked back over her life and she realized, I have not lived at all the way that I should have lived. I thought I was poor, but I'm rich. And she tells this to the jeweler. And he says, not only are you rich, he said, I probably understated it. Probably the truth is, not only is this worth more than all the jewelry that you see in my store, he said, I've been open for 30 years. This diamond is worth more than all of the jewelry and all of the diamond that's ever been in my store at all in the last 30 years. The woman can't believe it. She's shocked. She says to the jeweler, she said, everything is different now. Everything is different now. Why is it different? It's different because they understand the value of this object that they didn't understand just a little while ago. She says, my whole life is different now. She said, we can sell our house still, but we're not going to downsize. We're going to move to the rich side of town now. I'm filthy rich. I don't have to worry about how big the house is. I can hire someone to clean my house. It doesn't matter if we have a really long driveway. My, hire, my husband can hire someone to clear the snow. My whole life is different. She said, my daughter went that I just dropped off at college. She desperately wanted to play soccer, but she couldn't play soccer because she had to work two jobs to try and pay for a little bit of school so she didn't have to take out as many loans. She can play soccer now. My whole life is different now. And this is what David is telling us that worship looks like. This is a picture of worship. Worship starts in our mind. In the scripture that I read to you, 
David is listing the attributes of God. He's talking about God's character. He's talking about who he is. He's talking about his kindness, his goodness, his excellencies. And he goes down the line in his mind, listing these things about God until he has an emotional eruption. He can't control himself. He has to let this worship out of his house, out of his heart. He goes down the line until it dawns on him how valuable God is. Just like the jeweler and this woman, she took the ring, took it to a specialist. They looked at it. They analyzed it. They were critical of it until it dawned on them how valuable this ring was. But then it wasn't just enough to end at this place where the jeweler and the woman were having the emotional response. She's crying. She feels like she's going to pass out. She feels like she's going to fall down. The emotional response wasn't enough. She had to say, my life is going to be totally different right now. So we have an emotional, we have, it starts in our mind where we look at God. We list his attributes. We go down the list of who he is until it dawns on us. We have an emotional response. And then it leads to a transformed life. That is what worship is. Worship is ascribing ultimate value to something, responding in your emotions, and then changing your life because you see the value. So why should we worship God? Why should we worship God? We should worship God because you're already ascribing ultimate value to something. You're already worshiping something. Everything in your life is already orient, oriented around something that you've decided is the most important thing. We all have something that we've decided is the most important thing, and everything in our life is kind of positioned around this thing that we've decided is the most important. We tend to think that the world is divided into two groups of people, those who worship God and those who don't worship God. It's true the world is divided into two groups of people, but the groups are actually different than that. The groups are those who worship the wrong things and those who worship the only thing that's worthy of being worshipped. Because what you worship will begin to control you. What you worship will begin to set up what your life looks like. Everything that you do in your life is a reflection of what you value, what you've decided is, is the most worthy. The answer to why we should worship is found in verse 3. David says, For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. The essence of worship is recognizing that your heart has already ascribed ultimate value to something. We tend to think that worship is like something that we stir up inside of us, but it's not really that at all. Worship is really taking your heart's affection that you've placed on something that can distort and destroy your life and taking that affection of your heart and placing it on the only thing that isn't going to distort or destroy your life. Uh, in one of the Harry Potter books, there's this story. In Harry Potter, he's, he's like walking through his life, and then he stumbles upon this mirror. And the mirror is called the mirror of Erised. It's desire spelled backwards. So he picks up this mirror, and he looks in the mirror, and he expects to see a reflection of himself. But he's shocked when he doesn't see a reflection of himself. What he sees is his parents. He sees his parents and they're playing with him. They're proud of him. They're laughing. They're tickling him. They're having fun. He's shocked. He's totally blown away. Not only because 
this, he expected to see a reflection of himself. The main reason he's shocked is his parents are dead. Harry Potter has never met his parents. They died about the time that he was born. So he's like amazed. This is like incredible. He sees his parents finally. And he says to himself, I've got to show someone. So he goes and he finds his best friend. And he wants to show his friend. His friend knows that his parents are dead. He understands how much that would mean to Harry Potter. So Harry Potter takes the mirror and turns it around to show his friend. His friend looks in the mirror and he says, wow, that's incredible. But he doesn't see his parents. He sees himself. He's playing sports. He's playing football. He's muscular. He's amazingly talented. And there's stadiums of people in his high school that are cheering for him. So he looks at this and he says, this is incredible. Look at me. That's who I've always wanted to be. They don't understand what's happening. So they, they're kind of like talking about what's going on. And then Harry Potter's mentor comes up and he explains it to him. And this is what he said. He says, the mirror shows you the deepest and most desperate desire of your heart. Everyone has put their hope in something, Harry. You say, if I had this, then I would be okay. If I had that, then I would be happy. My life would have meaning. I would have joy. Whatever that thing is will begin to control you. Harry Potter's mentor says, we must destroy this mirror because whoever sees it will waste away looking at it. Becky Pipper is an author and she said this. She says, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who lives for acceptance is controlled by the people he or she seeks to please. But one thing is certain. We are not controlled by ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. I'm going to try and give you guys one example of this that hopefully would be an easy example that you would all agree with. I'm going to talk about something that some people worship. And I think you'll be able to see how it's not a good thing to worship this. And I'm going to let you draw the line between this thing that I'm talking about that some people are tempted to worship and what the thing is that you're tempted to worship sometimes. And I know a lot of you are Christians and you would say, well, I worship God, and I'm sure you do. But there might be other things that sometimes because you're a human, you're tempted to worship. My example is um, alcohol. Some people actually worship alcohol. I don't, it'd be, be hard to really find someone who would ever say they worship alcohol, but some people actually do worship alcohol. I think probably most of us know someone who is an alcoholic in our, in our lives, or we've met someone who is an alcoholic. When you worship alcohol, it begins to control you. You find yourself doing things that you never imagined you would do. You'll lie to the people that you love the most about it. You'll lie to your boss at work about it. You'll steal to get alcohol. You'll take money that you're supposed to use to pay the rent for your house that puts a roof over your family's head. You'll take that money and you'll buy alcohol knowing that it might lead to your family becoming homeless because you've taken alcohol and you've made it this thing that you value the highest. You've ascribed ultimate value to alcohol. And so you'll do anything for it. You begin to position your life around it. You begin to blow through barriers that you said you would never blow through. You'd say, you know what, I'm never going to drive when I'm drunk. Like, I'll, I'll drink and whatever, but I'm never going to drive when I'm drunk. And before you know it, you'll be driving around drunk. Even though you know you said, you set that boundary up, I will never do that. 
but it doesn't stop there. Eventually, you'll say, you know what, I mean, maybe I'll drive once in a while, but I would never drive with my kids in the car. Like, I would, I would just never do that. Before you know it, you'll be driving to pick up your kids from school, drunk. Not only putting your own life in danger, putting all the people on the road's life in danger, driving to a school where there's hundreds of kids where an accident could so easily happen. Then you're driving down the freeway with your kids in the back seat, drunk putting their lives in danger when you said you would never do something like that because you've ascribed ultimate value to alcohol. And when you begin to worship it, your reality begins to get distorted. It gets twisted. Somebody from the outside can look in and go, you took the money that you were supposed to pay rent with to take care of your kids, to put a roof over the head, and you bought alcohol? Like, that's insane. But to that person in that place, their reality has become twisted and their life is on the border of becoming destroyed because they've placed ultimate value in alcohol. They would never say that they placed ultimate value in alcohol. It would be pretty hard to find someone who would say that. But it's so clear to us on the outside looking in that that's the most important thing to them. The thing that you worship we begin to control you, whatever it is. You, can, you guys can obviously probably see it with alcohol, but there's lots and lots of other things. Everything that you do, the reason you get up when you get up, the reason you do what you do, if I looked at your YouTube history, I could probably see what you've oriented your life around, the things that are the most important to you. So if we see how important it is to worship God, because He is the only thing that will not distort our life. Not only will he not distort our life or destroy it, when you worship God, you're worshiping the only one who actually has the power to transform your life. The only one who has the power to heal the broken places in your life. The only one who has the power to take the burden off of your shoulders that's been weighing you down and set you free. So we see how important it is to worship God. How can we get better at it? How do we worship? So in this portion of scripture, there are four things that I'm going to call four necessities to worship. They're kind of like essentials if you want to worship. These are things that we need. The first one is community. This one could be easy to miss when you're looking at this portion of scripture, but it's in the plurals. So all throughout this uh, scripture, everything that David says, he's using plurals. He says, come let us sing for joy. Let us shout aloud. Let us bow down. Let us kneel. He is our God. We are his people. So we're called to worship in community, in a group of people. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite writers. And he had two best friends. Uh, Their names were Jack, being C.S. Lewis, Ronald, who was J.R.R. Tolkien, and Charles. These guys were like the best of friends. They were super close. And then Charles tragically dies. He passes away. And Jack, C.S. Lewis, says this. He said, this is awful. I'm so devastated. I'm crushed beyond crushed. But at least I will get to to have more of Ronald. I will no longer have to share Ronald with Charles. He discovers that there were certain things in Ronald that only Charles brought out. 
When Charles died, he didn't have more of Ronald. He had less of Ronald because no one person can draw out the entire personality of another. We can only completely know someone in community where we all draw different things out of each other. The same reasons that that couples would ever go on a double date. Like, why would a couple go on a double date? Like, you're supposed to go out on a date with the person that you love. And so why would you really want anyone else to be there? Well, you want them to be there because different people draw different things out of the person that you love. I was raised in a certain way. Um, I was raised by specific parents, and I was raised in a certain town, and I had a, a life, you know? And because of that life, I view the world through a filter, just like you view the world through a filter. And, and I view God through a filter. I've had certain experiences with God. He showed me parts of who he is. He's healed broken things inside of me. So I see God. And when I see God, I see like this sliver of God. If you think of God as like a circle, like a pie, I see like one little sliver of who God is based on my experiences in life, based on uh, what I've experienced of God. I just see this one part of God. But Gene has had a totally different experience in God. Like when Gene says God is my healer, she means something different than I do. Like, yeah, God's my healer. He healed this broken stuff in me. When Gene says God is my healer, like she means like I was going to die, but God literally healed me. So when, with Jean, she's got this totally different triangle of God over here that she sees in the pie that I don't even know anything about. But when we come together in worship and Jean comes up and waves a banner, and it's like, oh, what's she waving a banner? She sees a different part of God than I do. She sees something totally different. And Tom, he's had a different, Tom's walked with God for a long time. Like he's, he was a farmer. He's had a totally, I've never been a farmer. I don't have a farming life. He did. And in that farming life, those hours on a tractor, those hours in a barn, God showed him totally, God spoke to him through cows. Like God used cows to speak to him. God never used a cow to speak to me. I don't, there are times where Tom tells me stories and he tells me things that God taught him. He's got all kinds of stories about when he was on the tractor and he would see something and God would speak to him. And I was never flipping dirt and God spoke to me out of that. Like, I don't know anything about that, but Tom does. He's got this whole different triangle on the pie of who God is. So when we come together, we get a way more broad picture of who God is. We see him so much clearly than we ever would see him on our own. We need each other. We need to worship in community. If that's true, then we need men to come and worship. We need women to come and worship. We need young. We need old. We need as many races as possible. We need people with as many different backgrounds as possible so that we can see God more clearly. God wants us to worship in community. The second essential for worship is the truth. It's the truth. So David says a bunch of stuff in this psalm. He says, that God is the great God. He says that in his hands are the depths of the earth. How does David know that the sea is God's? How does he know that God is a shepherd, that we are the flock under his care? How does David know all these things? Like, is he just saying random stuff? Is, Is he just having random thoughts? He's not having random thoughts. He's not even saying God is like a shepherd. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying he is a shepherd. 
What David is actually doing is David is reciting scripture. David is reciting scripture. David is saying the things that the prophets told him about God previously. David is entering into the discipline of chewing on the word of God. David is accepting that the scripture is one of the ways that God has chosen to reveal himself to us. So David is laying the foundation of the word of God in his life. He has this foundation of the truth in his life. Why is this important? Why do we need this foundation of truth in order to worship in our life? The reason we need it is if you look at David's life, if you study his life, you find out that David didn't exactly always have the easiest life. Sometimes you hear people talking about how good God is, how faithful he is, how loving he is, how kind he is, how merciful he is. And you think, man, they just had an easy life. Like, that's great that they saw that God was good because right now, I don't even know if God's good. When I look at my life, it doesn't feel like God is good. David didn't have an easy life. He's not saying these things because his life was easy. David had a hard life. There was times where David was left alone. There was times where no one else was with him. He was all by himself. There was times where David had to fight lions and bears as a teenager. How many teenagers you know that had to deal with fighting lions and bears? Probably not too many in Warsaw, right? Teenagers think they have a hard life when they have to take out the garbage. Try fighting lions and bears. David had to fight Goliath. How many of you ever have had a big problem in your life and it's loud, it's in your face, and it is not going anywhere? Have you ever had a situation like this? Like, this is big, it's in my face. I wish someone else would deal with it, but it doesn't seem like anyone else is. So I'm sitting here and I'm going to have to find a way to go through this thing. That's what David did with, with Goliath. David not only did that, he was misunderstood. How many of you have ever felt misunderstood in life? David tried his best to honor the most powerful man in the land. He tried his best to love him and care for him and protect him. He had his back when that guy didn't even know he had his back. And it ends with this guy chasing David around the country, trying to murder him. David is running from cave to cave, hiding with a few close friends when this most powerful man in the land is trying to kill him. David has not had an easy life. And in most of those situations, it wasn't even like he did anything to bring those situations on. He was just walking through life and it just like came out of nowhere at him. He didn't have any control over it. But then there were some situations where David did have some control over it too. There's some times where David made some horrible, horrible, decisions. How many of you ever made some horrible decisions? David had this weekend that was not the best weekend of his life. How many have a weekend of your life that you look back and it's like, not my best weekend. You know, if somebody's walking through life, video recording me, I hope the camera battery died because I don't want anybody to know about that weekend. It was not a good weekend. David not only sinned, David planned to sin. It was on purpose. How many of you ever put sin on your calendar? I have. 
Maybe some of you want to look down your religious nose at me like you haven't, but that's okay because you're a liar too. (laughs) I have put sin on my calendar. Friday night, I'm going to get down with a get down, right? It's Monday. I got five days ahead of me, and I'm planning for five days to sin. I'm looking forward to my sin. So messed up, but it's true. And not only did David sin, he took this woman who wasn't his wife. But then when he sinned, he felt bad about it. He felt stupid. He felt like God wouldn't want to see him. So what does he do? He covers it up. How many of you have ever tried to cover up your sin? And things go from bad to worse. And David kills a guy. He has him killed to cover up his sin. That's a bad weekend. That's not a good weekend. You know, like this is not the kind of thing you want to be your story. How does David deal with these external situations that come against them and these internal things in him that cause him to sin and cause him to make horrible mistakes? How does he do it? How does he, how does he not quit in life? He has the foundation of truth. He has the foundation of the word of God. When David sins, he says, um, he eventually gets confronted by this guy about his sin. We all need friends to confront us in our sin, amen? He has this friend who confronts him, and in David's response, he says, purge me with hyssop. That's like the most heavy-duty cleaner you could find. This is not like the dollar store cleaner. This is like commercial-grade cleaner. David is like, I've got this mess inside of me, God. Like, I need you to purge me with, with hyssop. How, why does David feel like he can go to God after he just slapped God in the face and asked God to clean him? Why does David feel like he could do that? How does he have any confidence in saying, God, would you come and would you purge me with hyssop? It's because he has the foundation of the word of God. He has the foundation of truth in his life that he knows he can go to a loving father who can wash him whiter than snow. And he can say, cleanse me. The way that David made it through life was he had this foundation of truth that allowed him to stand up in the most difficult situations and worship God. So we need community. We need the truth. The next thing we need is the spirit. We need the spirit. Noah doesn't say the spirit specifically in this portion of scripture, but in verse two, it says to come into his presence. This might be confusing for some people. Um, In Psalm 39, David said, where can I go from your presence? If I go all the way down into hell, you're still there. So David is basically saying, God, I can't go anywhere to hide from you. Wherever I try and go to hide from you, you're still there. So yes, God is everywhere. But David also says things like, cast me not away from thy presence. And the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 64 says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and that the mountains would melt at your presence. So God is everywhere, but it seems like there's these other times where God's presence is like more powerful or something. What's the deal with that? The deal is this. God is everywhere. He's always with you. He's always with me at all times. There's nowhere we can go to hide from him. But there are times that the Holy Spirit will make us more aware of God's presence. There's times where the Holy Spirit will like pull the cover off of our eyes, and we can see, and sometimes we can even feel God's presence in worship. In John chapter 3, the Holy Spirit is talked about as being like a wind. 
And sometimes I think worship is kind of like sailing. As a worship leader, I feel like it's like the life of a sailor. A sailor can't do anything to create the wind. If the wind doesn't blow, he's just sitting there like Tommy Boy out in his dinghy, sitting there, no wind, nowhere to go, right? But when the wind blows, the sailors know exactly what to do. The sailors know just how to get their sails up, just how to position them just right to catch the wind. And it's beautiful to watch a sailboat when it's catching the wind with a sailor that knows just what, just what to do. Worship is just like that sometimes. We can't necessarily control what the Holy Spirit is going to do. But what we can do is we can come to worship and we can have our sails up. We can be ready for him to move, ready for the wind to blow. And I can tell you that at Family Life Church, when the Holy Spirit blows, that's the direction that we're going to go. It doesn't matter if we didn't get to do the worship song that we practiced so hard on Thursday and we wanted to get there and we love this song. It doesn't matter if we don't get there. It doesn't matter if the Holy Spirit blows in the middle of the announcements or when I'm halfway through my sermon I didn't quite finish my point. If and when the Holy Spirit blows, we're going to go in that direction. Amen? So what can we do if we can't control the Holy Spirit? How do we position our sails? How do we act like the sailors waiting for the wind? The way that we do that is we come seeking and expecting. We come seeking and expecting. Sometimes when, the, when I'm in the middle of a worship service and the Holy Spirit, I don't feel like he's really moving or doing something specific. I'm just like David. Like when we're singing these worship songs, we're listing attributes about God. We're talking about his goodness, his kindness, his faithfulness waiting for the wind to blow, waiting for the Spirit to move. And you guys can actually help us with this. You don't have to wait until 1031 or 1040 when the song comes on just right and now you're excited. Now you're going to wait and see if the Holy Spirit's going to move. You guys can get in the car in the morning with your family and you can together start talking about the goodness of God, talking about the kindness of God, talking about His excellencies, His character, so that when we roll in together, We're rolling in together in here to church in a community with the foundation of truth and expecting the Holy Spirit to move. So we need community, we need the truth, and we need the Spirit. The last thing that we need is rest. Rest. So this portion of Scripture ends kind of strangely if you paid attention when I read it. It's like everything is going fine. David is talking about how to worship why we worship, and he kind of keeps going back and forth in this pattern of talking about how we worship and why we worship. And then all of a sudden it gets to the last couple verses and it turns a strange corner and it's like, whoa, like what was that about? Like you're talking about worship and then in your next breath, all of a sudden it's those rebellious children of Israel that wandered around in the desert and you know God had wrath against them and all this stuff. And it's like, whoa, what's that about? I don't really have time to get into it completely, but there's a portion of scripture in Hebrews that specifically talks about this, um, this scripture. And if you are interested more, you can check it out yourself. I'm just going to tell you what I believe David is saying. What I believe David is saying here is that we need to worship God from a position of rest. So what do I mean about that? Because I'm talking about singing and shouting and dancing and clapping, but then I'm saying resting. Those two things don't seem like they go together. What's the deal? So we can worship God from one of two places. We can worship him from a position of knowing 
that we have relationship with him, that he wants relationship with us. He loves us. He accepts us. He's a loving father that made room for us in the family and made a way for us to be in relationship with him. It's the message of the gospel, right? Or we can worship him from a place of trying to earn relationship from him. We can worship him from a place of striving for relationship, striving for his affection, striving to to get in his good graces. When we actually already are in his good graces, he already loves you. He's already for you. He's not against you. So why did David throw this at the end of this section of scripture on worship? I think it's because he understands human nature. And he know he already said that worship is intended to be this uh this transaction where our lives are transformed. It's supposed to be this transformational experience. But David is saying that if we don't approach God from a place of rest, from a place of resting in our relationship with him, in our acceptance in him, that worship will stop becoming a transformational experience and will become one more burden that you have to carry in your life. It'll become one more thing to check off your list of things that you have to do to be accepted by God. And you'll probably fail at it like you have at every other thing. And then you'll feel like less of a person. You'll feel farther from him. So at the end of this thing, David is saying, like, don't make it about works. It's like David is introducing the message of the gospel before it even existed, basically. He's saying, don't get wrapped up in striving for this thing, but rest in who he's made you to be. Rest in the fact that you're already loved and already accepted. So in order to worship well, we need community. We need the foundation of truth, the Holy Spirit, and we need to worship from rest. Would you bow your heads this morning? I want to end just by going back to my um, second point. Why should we worship God? I said that you should worship God because you're already worshiping something. You've already ascribed ultimate value to something in your life. And worship is taking your heart's affection off of this other thing that you've placed value on that will distort your life and could even destroy your life and putting your affection back on Jesus. I want to give you a second just to ask the Lord, what is the thing that you've been tempted to worship? What is the thing in your life that you've ascribed ultimate value to? What is the thing in your life that's central and everything else is kind of positioned around it? What is the thing in your life that you freak out when it doesn't go well or it doesn't go the way that you wanted it to? Lord, we ask you to speak to us. Help us to see the things that we've ascribed ultimate value to. Lord, I ask that as we begin to, in our minds, just begin to list and go down who you are as, as a God, as a Father, as a loving Father, listing your character, listing your excellencies, that it would dawn on us how valuable you are, like the woman with the diamond, that it would just be like a light bulb moment, that we would see how valuable you are 
that we would have an emotional response that would change the patterns of our life. Lord, what are the patterns of our life that have been set around these other things, positioned around these other things that we've made way too valuable? God, what are the places that our life has become distorted? Our reality has become twisted. Lord, we choose right now to take our affection off of those things that warp our reality and put our affection on not only the only thing that doesn't twist our reality, but on a loving Father that has the power to heal the broken places in our life. On a loving Father that can take the burdens, the weights that we've been carrying, and you can throw them off of us so that we can be free. Lord, I ask you to show us and help us to respond. Lord, that we would become true worshipers that respond in our emotions and our lives are transformed. That worship would be this transformational experience that you intended it to be. In your name I pray, amen. Have a blessed week.